What's up, guys? This is Ryan, and I am here with Mark. Hey. And Nick is on his way. Yeah, uh, he got lost. He got lost. He went to the wrong house, uh, unfortunately. So it's just Mark and I, and we are introducing this episode. And uh, this is a very special episode that we decided to put at the end of the Book of Mark because of the controversy on the last chapter of Mark. Some people aren't sure whether that portion should be in the Bible or not, and it really depends on your view of the manuscripts. And so because of that, we took really the leading voice on biblical manuscripts, and we talked to him today about just the different type of manuscripts that are out there, how we get Bible translations that we get, what should or shouldn't be in the Bible, how do we determine that, and that is Dr. Daniel B. Wallace. So let me give you a quick little overview of who Daniel B. Wallace is. Dan is a senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is where almost everybody on our show comes from. <laughs> we're, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're friends with Dallas Theological at this point. And he has taught there for more than 32 years. He's the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He earned a bachelor's at Biola University in 1975 with a major in biblical studies and a minor in Greek. He graduated magna cum laude from Dallas Seminary with a THM degree in 1979, Master's of Theology, with the equivalent of a major in Old Testament studies and a double major in New Testament studies. Jeez. And then he graduated summa cum laude from Dallas Seminary with a PhD in New Testament studies in 1995. He's done postdoctoral study at Tyndale House, Christ College, Clare College, Westminster College, Cambridge, and then some German college, oh, several German colleges, Glasgow University, uh, Bavarian State Library, Munich, the National Library of Greece, Athens, as well as various libraries and monasteries in Europe, Australia, America, and Africa. So this man is well-traveled and well-studied. He's a professional student. Yeah. He's a member of several scholarly societies. He has written, co-authored, edited, or contributed to more than three dozen books. And as an internationally known Greek New Testament scholar, Daniel B. Wallace has been a consultant for four Bible translations, which we're going to get into a little bit in the episode. The ESV the TNIV, the New King James Bible, and the New English Translation. He's also contributed articles to the ESV Study Bible and the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible. So this man has done it all when it comes to studying, especially the New Testament. Um, he, is, he is an authority on manuscripts. He is authority on um, early New Testament copies. And so we decided to have him on today to talk about the book of Mark, translations, and manuscripts. So we hope that you guys enjoy. Bible Diggers. So uh, what is textual criticism and how does it work? Textual criticism is uh, the field in which 
scholars are trying to determine the exact wording of an autograph or an original writing. It could be a handwritten document or it could be even a printed document published on the printing press. It has been the foundation for knowledge of uh, the written word of the past for 2,000 years. This is how we have accessed it. Uh, the Renaissance brought a, a, about a, a great resurgence in an examination of ancient manuscripts, and with that examination came the inevitable a question of, well, how come these two manuscripts of Homer's Iliad disagree with each other? How can we tell which one comes closer to the original? And that really is textual criticism, trying to determine the exact wording of an original document when that original is either no longer in existence or is uh, unrecoverable in some way. Awesome. And I'm going to follow up this question with a very important question. Are there any significant variances in our ancient manuscripts? As in the New Testament manuscripts specifically? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, quite a few. Um, we have the actual number, and this is just an estimate. We have not been able to examine all the manuscripts. In fact, we've only examined about 20% of them completely. Uh, we have over 5,500 manuscripts, and most of those have uh, either been just barely touched on or not examined at all. Wow. But based on the evidence that we do have and extrapolations, uh, it looks like we have about one and a half million textual differences among these witnesses. Now, the great majority of those, uh, about a million of them, are just spelling differences. Like, there's two different ways to spell John. With one N, it's Ioannes, uh, and with one N in the middle, or two Ns. It doesn't affect a thing. It's never spelled Peter, you know? <laughs> so uh, nobody would ever mistake it for somebody else. So the kinds of text variants we have are those that can fit into uh, several different categories. They could be meaningful variants that also are viable. That is, that there's a good chance that they could go back to the original wording, and they do affect the meaning of the text to some degree. There are variants that are on the exact opposite end of that, which are neither meaningful nor viable. It might be found in one late 12th century manuscript, it's the only one that has it, and it's a different spelling of a word, or it's um, a nonsense reading. Those, those, we get tons of nonsense readings just because of inattentive scribes. Uh, then you've got those that are meaningful but not viable, and those that are viable but not meaningful. So of those four categories, the only ones that textual critics and scholars are really concerned about are the ones that are both meaningful and viable. So we're saying it, it changes the meaning of the text to some degree, and it could be a very small change. For example, in John 4.1, we have when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more disciples than John, or when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard. This is a major textual problem. Does it say Jesus or the Lord? And the manuscripts are, are split on that. There are no manuscripts that say when Peter knew, when Mary knew, when the Pharisees knew, when anybody else except our Lord knew. But the way they refer to him is in two different ways. And so that's considered a meaningful textual problem. 
and both readings are viable. Now, the number of meaningful and viable variants uh, is about, this is probably a high estimate, but I think it's uh, one-fifth of one percent of all the texture variants are both meaningful and viable. That's ridiculously small. What we're looking at are uh, very few problems that are both meaningful and viable, and of those, there are two passages that involve more than two verses, only two, two texture problems. Both of them involve 12 verses. Then we have less than two dozen textual problems that involve two verses, one or two verses. All the rest are smaller than that. The great majority of them uh, involve one word or just parts of a word in terms of spelling differences, that kind of thing. Hmm. So I wanted to kind of move into Bible translations now because I know that there's a couple different ways that people prefer their Bibles to look. Some of them prefer to use only the earliest copies of manuscripts, uh, and they think that that's the most accurate way of reading the Bible. And then some prefer just what the largest majority of manuscripts say. First, am I correct in saying that? And then secondly, um, which method do you think is better to go with? You're correct to a degree as far as the external evidence, that is the actual physical manuscripts. There are some who put an emphasis on the oldest manuscripts. Others, far fewer, put an emphasis on the majority of later manuscripts that have a significantly higher amount of agreement with each other. But what's interesting is that the oldest ones, although they do not agree as systematically as the more recent manuscripts, this tells us that it was not done in a factory. It wasn't done by some kind of a control group that says this is how these texts should read. Uh, the New Testament was freely copied from the very earliest stages and there wasn't any kind of a central control that said, here's how you must write this out. Unlike the Hebrew Bible, unlike uh, the Quran, uh, 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 the New Testament was done far more freely, and yet there was a, a strict school in terms of method, not in terms of content, but in terms of method, that came out of Alexandria, Egypt. And our New Testament manuscripts fall in line with that kind of a method, at least our best ones do, uh, which are very early. And they uh, followed some rules about how you should copy out a text to be extremely accurate and careful in the copying. So what we've discovered is that in the earliest period, we have some that are pretty free. Uh, these are called typically Western manuscripts. We have those that follow a strict line of copying, but only in terms of method, not in terms of you have to say Jesus was raised from the dead. You have to say Jesus was God. There's no control like that. This is, this is a myth to think that like Emperor Constantine controlled what the New Testament would look like. Mm. That's just that's an utter silly uh, speculation that has no basis whatsoever in history. Mm. Uh, but in terms of the uh, method, this is where the Alexandrian school really shined. Now, that's the external evidence. When you look at internal evidence, scholars are also asking the question, 
between two readings, that is the wording of two different manuscripts, regardless of the age of those manuscripts, which wording seems to have given rise to the other one? So we look, for example, at John 4.1 again, an illustration I used earlier. Did the original text say when Jesus knew or when the Lord knew? When you look at John's Gospel, you look at the whole thing, and, and you realize that John does not often speak of Jesus as Lord until later. And it seems to fit much better to say when Jesus knew in that context for that very reason. And then when you look at the external evidence, you discover that most of the early manuscripts seem to have the name Jesus there. And it's the later manuscripts that change it to Lord. Why would they do that? Well, that's uh, a reverential kind of an alteration that's harmless, and yet it moves in the direction of after the 4th century you have Orthodox scribes especially that are copying the text, and that's when you start to really get some controls is long after orthodoxy became orthodox, when it really took over the church. Fourth century AD, when Constantine ordered 50 copies of the Bible to be sent to the capital, Constantinople. And from that point on, you start to get much more stringent copying uh, in terms both of method and content. So I hope that, that helps a little bit. But scholars look at the evidence in terms of what is there physically, in terms of date, in terms of the kind of manuscript it is, in terms of the quality of the copying. You can have a, a very, let's say, uh, I'll give an illustration. Let's say you had two people listening to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And, of course, we have several versions of that. But one of these is listening to him directly. And he's a very poor copyist. He makes a lot of spelling mistakes as he's writing down his words as fast as he can. Another person is hearing someone else report what Lincoln said a year later. And so he's an exacting scribe. He writes down exactly what this person said. Unfortunately, you've already had a year of corruption where it doesn't necessarily go back very strongly to Lincoln. So we have to sort through which manuscripts have fewer uh, intermediate copies that no, no longer exist between the original and that copy. We can't tell, obviously, the, the exact number, but we can get a sense of it's a lot or it's a few, and what the quality of the copying is itself. So you can have a, a good stream of transmission with some bad copies in it. You can have some almost perfect copies in a very bad stream of transmission, which is actually the majority of our manuscripts. The later manuscripts, some of them look like they were almost done off a printing press. They are just so much alike. And yet, it, it, it was it's kind of a game over. That's already long after the text had be moved towards a certain shape. And by the 9th century AD, we get what's called the Byzantine manuscripts to start taking on the shape of the whole New Testament. Wow. Really fascinating. Um, okay, so uh, Dr. Wallace, as a scholar yourself, we just uh, are curious if you have a preferred Bible translation that you use. I don't have a single translation that I use. Uh, I have to uh, admit my biases to begin with, but these are biases that I accept because I wanted to be involved in these projects. I am on the Committee for Bible Translation for the NIV. Uh, I was uh, 
invited to join that committee a couple of years ago, and it's a lifetime position. There's just 15 of us. We're doing all the revisions of the NIV from this point on. All, all of them go through this small committee. Mm. And one of the things I've learned about, we get together for one week every year, at least one week, and it's a very intense work. And these scholars are, are amazingly brilliant. I have no idea why they invited me on, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to be looking shoulder to shoulder with these folks. And, Didn't you have uh, my, a hand in the NET Bible as well? Well, I was going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the NIV. I'm just. I'm. A, I, I. I think it's an underappreciated translation because they try to follow what they call natural English, but the decisions on how to translate it are are. There's depth to these decisions. They have really worked through these issues very, very carefully, with a number of scholars from various backgrounds, various countries, various realms of expertise. The Net Bible was done by a smaller committee of just about 22 scholars. The NIV started with 100 scholars, then the CBT uh, later uh, has been the ones in charge of the revisions from that point on, and that's just 15. But the Net Bible, what we did for that was we chose scholars as the initial translators who had taught that particular book in the original language uh, multiple times and were well-known scholars in that realm. So that was, I think, uh, something that was very beneficial for the NET. I was the senior and am the senior New Testament editor of the NET Bible. It's not as well-known, but Thomas Nelson has recently published it. It was privately published before that through Biblical Studies Press. And the NET Bible, what marks it out, uh, among other things, is it has more footnotes than any other Bible translation in any language in history, wow. about 60,000 footnotes. And one of the things that we say about the Net Bible is if you want to find out the various interpretations on an important passage, just look it up in the Net. It will summarize it. These are uh, copious notes. They'll talk about interpretive options, about the textual variants. They'll talk about uh, various ways to translate. And it has become the translator's translation. We have gotten strong recommendations from the NIV folks and from the ESV folks that this is the Bible they use to help them through the problems. So we ask people to say, well, just look at your favorite passage and uh, look at it in two or three different translations, and they see, well, there's some differences. Then they look at the Net Bible, and it explains these differences and why various translations went the direction they did. So I think it's, it's a, a remarkable translation that is going to help pastors be faithful to the text because people can come to church and check on the sermon and go deeper than what the pastor is saying, sometimes just by looking at the Net Bible notes. Well, I'm going to check that so out. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend those two. I, I recommend the ESV for great for memorizing. Uh, it's, it's memorable. I don't think the scholarship is as strong as these other two translations, but it is. It's an understated elegance. And I also strongly recommend that everybody own a King James Version, because that stands behind so many of our idioms today, and it is the literary heritage of English-speaking people. They need to know the King James Bible. Uh, this is, it, it, it's elegance, it's memorability, make it stand out. It's the only literary product, it's true literature produced by a committee. And it's a, not just produced by a committee, but it's a translation. 
this is it's had universal acclaim across the board by Christians, non-Christians. is a, a beautiful work. The goal of the King James was not to be the most accurate translation possible, though. That's a, a terrible myth uh, that has been promoted for a long time. Their goal was to really make it memorable. And they even say in the original preface, we try to vary the wording so it'll it'll uh, pop. That's not 1611 English, but <laughs> so it'll, it, it'll linger, it'll uh, linger in the mind better, you know, those kinds of things. And there was actually uh, a translation called the Revised Version that came out in 1885 for the whole Bible, uh, 274 years after the King James Bible came out. And they said, we don't like the King James because they varied the wording so much. We want ours to be as literal as possible. And so they didn't vary the wording. If you want a, a, a literal translation that's it's as close to word for word, which is absolutely impossible, then get the revised version of 1881 for New Testament or 85 for the whole Bible. But it's not English. It's, it's, it's terrible, slavish English, where it's tied to the Greek and Hebrew so much you can hardly understand it. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that about the King James Version, that they weren't trying... That wasn't their main goal, was to be accurate to the original. Right. Well, they, they do want to be faithful to the meaning, of course. Of course. Uh, but they also wanted to vary the style. That was elegance, I think, was a more important goal for the King James translators. That is interesting. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, so we're a show that goes through each book of the Bible, and we give the author and context and things like that. And so we we wanted your episode to come after the book of Mark because there's a lot of confusion in regards to the end of the book of Mark. And so I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, where you think the book of Mark originally ended? Well, as you know, the, you have the long ending, the 12 verses, verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16, that are found in the great majority of manuscripts, but they are not found in the two oldest manuscripts we have from Mark's Gospel. Those two, both from the 4th century, uh, have Mark's Gospel end at verse 8. And that's where it says that the uh, the angel told the women to tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, and then it says they did nothing for they were afraid. Period. End of story. Great downer, Mark. Thanks a lot. Uh, but there are scholars who, generally speaking, you have uh, three broad opinions on this, and there's a lot of sub sub opinions. But one is, and probably the most predominant view today, is that Mark wrote more than verse eight in chapter sixteen. But what we have in there now was certainly not by him. That's probably the major opinion. The uh, second opinion, which is what I would hold to is that Mark intended to end his gospel at 16.8, where you have Jesus being raised from the dead, but you have no resurrection appearances to the disciples. And it is a gospel that is abrupt at the ending precisely to bring the readers into the story. And what Mark is essentially doing is saying, now, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to be silent, or will you speak? And, of course, we know the women ultimately did uh, talk to the disciples. We have that in the other Gospels as well. That the women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Uh, but uh, Mark is now wanting the reader to engage in the story. 
So it's an open-ended kind of a story, which we have some examples of in the ancient world. It's not common, but uh, it's not, like one modern commentator said, a Kafka-like ending. Uh, no, this was in the ancient world, open-ended. And in fact, I think Luke emulated his two-volume work after Mark's ending, where he starts in the Gospel of Luke, and then he gets to the book of Acts. And in the Gospel of Luke, or in the beginning of Acts, he says, now the first volume that I wrote to you, Theophilus, about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. You go, wait a minute, began to do and to teach? What are you talking about? No, it's what he did and taught. And I think Luke is writing to Theophilus to see what he could do to get Paul out of prison so that the gospel story will continue through Paul's ministry. And Theophilus may well have been an attorney uh, appointed to the case. He knew something about Christianity. But you notice that the book of Acts begins with a bang and it ends with a whimper. You go on for eight chapters at the end waiting for this trial before Caesar that we never get to. And you go, it just kind of fades away. And I think what Luke is saying is, Theophilus, what are you going to do to keep the story going? What are you going to do to get Paul out of prison? And uh, at least evangelical scholars would say Theophilus was successful. He got Paul out of prison. Paul went on and had another ministry for about uh, three more years and then died, um, was beheaded by Nero in 64. So uh, Theophilus would have gotten him out of prison, I think, at about 61. That's Luke emulating what Mark had done. You also have a clue that that's exactly what Mark is doing in his gospel. When he says in the very first verse, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the first verse in a book is very often in the ancient world considered the title of that book. And this doesn't say the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why would he say the word beginning? Unless he's expecting there to be a continuation that is not part of his written narrative. And that's why I would argue that he intended to end his gospel at 16. There's, there's a lot of other reasons. Those, there are some internal clues. There's uh, some arguments that some folks have noticed. The third view, broadly speaking, on the end of Mark's gospel is that it goes all the way through verse 20. And this is what you have in the King James Bible. You get King James-only activists, uh, um, advocates, I mean, that argue for this. And you have a number of other folks who also believe that Mark ended his gospel at verse 20. Uh, This is the passage where you have uh, the disciples, Jesus promising they can pick up snakes and not get um, killed and drink poison and speak in foreign tongues and this kind of thing. You have those kinds of narratives in the book of Acts, and it looks strangely similar to Acts, almost as if it was fabricated from those stories and then put into this gospel. And so we have to ask the question, what is more likely that scribes would have added these 12 verses so that they have a resurrection appearance by Jesus to his disciples, or that they would have cut out those 12 verses because they have some strange things in them about the snakes and poison? and all that. Well, those things, yes, they're strange, but as I said, they're also, we have at least some of that in Acts already. And the early church fathers did not have any problem with that section of uh, uh, Mark's gospel. That's, that's the one that they 
they said, well, if if Mark has it in his gospel, this is not this would, did not cause him problems. We we have almost no church fathers for five hundred years to have problems with the snake handling and the drinking of poison. So their view was, if this is authentic, uh, that's not a, a, an issue that we have with it. Are there similar sections to the Bible, like the end of Mark, where there's a debate over whether or not it's part of the original text? Yes, there's one other passage that is long, as I said, 12 verses long, and that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. That is what I would call my favorite passage that's not in the Bible. Hmm. It has uh, some historical roots to it, but we don't find it in any of our manuscripts until the 5th century. And uh, then we get it in a variety of forms. We have more significant textual variants in those 12 verses than we do just about any other place in the Gospels. Why would we have that? Well, the best explanation is that it's a text that was added later and that scribes were feeling free to change it how they wanted to. About 20% of our manuscripts do not have those 12 verses. They skip from John 7.52 right to John 8.12. The passage is also located at the end of Luke 21 in a group of manuscripts. It's also located between Luke and John, or at the end of all four Gospels in others. Uh, it, it floats. Floating texts frequently, if not normally, suggest that they are trying to find a place to fit into the canon, and they may or may not be successful. Here's one where I think a lot of scribes felt this is such an important story. It speaks of the compassion of the Lord, the forgiveness that he displays towards uh, those who are sinners. And at the same time, uh, they, they wanted it in the text, but it, it really didn't quite fit into that narrative. That's probably the best place for it to fit in some respects. But the wording of it is far more Lucan than it is Johanna. In other words, it sounds much more like the way Luke writes than the way John does. And that's one of the reasons why a number of manuscripts put it at the end of Luke 21. It's a, it's a fascinating passage. I think it was probably a conflated story from the 3rd century, one version in the West, one version in the East that got put together. And so there are elements of it that are true history. Jesus was approached by some religious leaders. A woman was caught in some sin. He drew something in, in the dirt and uh, he says, the, the, the one who was out sin, let him cast the first stone. Uh, but they didn't peel off from the oldest to the youngest, and probably the sin she was caught in was not uh, adultery. It was just left vague. I mean, she, it may have been that, but I think in Luke's source, he didn't have any anything more than that. One of my uh, students, Kyle Hughes, wrote an article in a major journal, Novum Testamentum, which was published in Leiden, Holland, arguing that one version of the story was part of what Luke actually had access to, and he left it on the the cutting floor when he edited his gospel for publication. And it's a suggestion that I had made to him when he was taking classes from me Hmm. in the master's program, and uh, he then got it published. He really pursued this well, and I think he did a fine job uh, demonstrating that. (laughs) That is really interesting. So I wanted to ask one more question before we let you go. Um, there's a, a big skeptic that 
a lot of us younger people are watching on YouTube, Bart Ehrman, he's been around for a while, and his main argument is that we don't know what the Bible actually says because we have copies of copies of copies, and that's his main argument, and that an unknowable amount of errors have crept in. So with your experience and knowledge in regards to the ancient manuscripts, how confident do you think we can be that what that what we're reading is actually what God intended for us to read. Bart's been a longtime friend, and he knows that that's just not telling the whole story. I'm not going to call him deceptive, but he says, you know, we don't even have copies of copies. We don't even have copies of copies of copies. And he goes on and on. It's, a very, it's great rhetoric in his book, Misquoting Jesus. But one of the things he doesn't mention is what George Houston uh, wrote about a few years ago in a book called Inside Roman Libraries, that the original papyrus documents of various books would last uh, 100 years or more. And some of them lasted and were still in use for hundreds of years. So is it possible that we have a manuscript that comes from two or three generations later that is a direct copy of the original? And think about it. We've got, say, uh, original manuscripts sent to Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, places like that. You've got Christians that are traveling all over the Mediterranean, and they say, hey, I'm going to be in Rome. I I understand Paul wrote a letter to you guys. Do you think I could uh, have my servant make a copy of it? And so this kind of thing would happen over and over and over again. And this is why it was it wasn't a controlled kind of a copying, but it was a personal type of copy. And then it got to be, we have uh, two letters from Paul in Corinth, and we'd be happy to share copies of those with you if you share your uh, copy of Paul's letter to you guys in Rome. And so this is how this stuff got disseminated. Well, after a while, the uh, original manuscripts are simply going to be worn out from all the copying. But how long would that take? How many copies do we actually have that may be, 100 years later, that may have actually copied from the original text? We may have some. But in the least, if you start comparing this, let's say we don't have anything for five, six generations of copies. We still have copies from as early as the second century, partial uh, uh, copies of of books uh, of the New Testament. But for the average Greco-Roman author, we're waiting 500 to 1,000 years before we get the very first copy. So if you do a comparison of apples with apples, you'd have to say that there is absolutely nothing in the ancient Greco-Roman world that even comes remotely close to the, the, the close time gap between the originals and the copies for the New Testament or the number of manuscripts of the New Testament uh, manuscripts uh, compared to the original. Uh, we have 5,500 of the, of the New Testament manuscripts in Greek alone, plus another 15, maybe 20,000 in, in other languages, and they have over a million quotations from church fathers. We have an embarrassment of riches for it. And Ehrman knows this. It's not just copies of copies in Greek. It's also these early church fathers who start quoting from the New Testament that date much earlier than our manuscripts, some of them. We also have these ancient versions, like the Latin that goes back to late 2nd, early 3rd century, and it starts having a tradition of its own where that whole Latin tradition is actually older than our oldest Greek manuscripts, and it's based on something that's even older. 
So you start doing this, it's a, a triangulation. You look at the ancient translations, you look at the oldest Greek copies, and you look at what the church fathers, the early church fathers have to say. And then you use internal evidence as to which reading would be likely to give rise to the others. And you have a pretty fair sense of what the original says. And Ehrman knows that that's the evidence that we're really looking at. He also, in one place, said that we actually do have first-generation copies of Mark's gospel in Matthew and Luke. Now, when he said that, what he was arguing was that they used Mark's gospel, Matthew and Luke both did. Matthew, in fact, has 600 of Mark's 660 verses in his gospel, tweaked, changed a bit, but still that's what he uses. He cannibalizes Mark, if you will. And so Ehrman recognizes that these two evangelists or gospel writers are using Mark's gospel extensively. And their purpose of it, though, was not to make an accurate copy. Their purpose of it was to use it for their own uh, purposes. So they are not bound to what the copyist's ethics are, and yet they didn't change the substance of Mark's gospel. This was a doctoral dissertation done at Cambridge University by a man named uh, Peter Head on the Christology of uh, the Gospels or Christology of Mark's Gospel, I forgot. But um, what he did is he looked at the comparison between Matthew and Mark and Luke and determined that what Matthew and Luke were doing with Mark's Gospel was not changing the essence of who Jesus was but it's filling in some more details, going in some more directions. But it's not a severe change where it's the the Jesus we see in Matthew is completely different from the Jesus we see in Mark. So if we want to argue, we don't have any early copies. Well, we do have Matthew and Luke, and we can compare those to Mark, and we get a very good sense of what Mark's gospel would have looked like. We have not just a triangulation, but a quadrilation, I guess, if you want to call it that, on finding out what the original said. So let let me conclude... Uh, with this. Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, when he came out with the paperback edition, uh, the hardback came out in in 2005, I think they sold 100,000 copies in the first three months. He was on Jon Stewart's Daily Show and Stephen Colbert Report, and that really spiked the sales of this book. Then they wanted to keep the sales going, so they published a paperback. And in the paperback uh, edition, there was an appendix where the editors of Misquoting Jesus asked Ehrman some questions. And on page 252 of the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, they asked him something like, why do you think that the uh, cardinal doctrines, the essential truths of Christianity, have been distorted, have, uh, are, are in jeopardy because of the variance in these manuscripts? They didn't ask him, do you think? They say, why do you think? These are the editors who had worked on his book, presumably, and they're asking him, why do you think? Just summarize what the book is all about. Well, he threw them a curveball. That's not what I think. There are no essential doctrines that are jeopardized by these variants, he goes on to say. You read the rest of his book, and it's really hard to see that. But when it came down to actually asking directly that question, what evidence do you have? that these manuscripts changed any essential doctrines. He said, well, I, I, I don't, don't have any evidence. So huh. I use Ehrman's own words to show that that's not what he actually believed. He can talk about it in general terms. We don't know exactly what the original text said, but let me give you a different quotation. 
This is from Sir Frederick Kenyon, one of the guys who worked on the early papyri 100 years ago. And I think this is a great statement that the great majority of textual scholars would agree to today. He said, the general result of all these discoveries and all the study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. Do we have in our hands, I'm going on now, uh, my words, do we have in our hands exactly what God intended to be written? And I would say, no, there are places where we don't know if it's original or not. And with every new Bible translation, there's a few changes, even what they think the text is. But do we have in substantial integrity the veritable Word of God? And I would say absolutely we do. There's no essential doctrines that are in jeopardy. And the vast, vast majority of even the particulars where nothing is at stake, we are pretty darn certain goes back to the original. That's incredible. You know... I'm going to let you go, but I wanted to thank you because you helped bring a lot of confidence to people who were otherwise beforehand unsure because of arguments like this and unsure that we are actually reading the words that God wants us to read. And so uh, we're honored to have you on the show. And uh, like I said, thank you again for all the work that you've done. You've put in so much work over the years towards this subject, and we really appreciate all the work that you've done. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Appreciate it, guys. Appreciate being crisp about all this, too. All right, no problem. Thank you, Dr. Wallace. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Wallace. Thank you so much.